Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is a second lecture on the same day. This is a Thursday afternoon, one of my favorite days of the week, actually. And it is, of course, still 7 September 2023. Now, we've been talking about lupus and the fact that it is a, by far, sex-biased autoimmune disease, where women are likely to um, suffer from lupus about 10 times more common than men. And we were in the middle of discussing the Tolec Receptor 7 and its involvement in this discussion. So remember, we were at the point we're talking about Turner syndrome in females. Turner syndrome is where there is only one normal X chromosome in that population. So that's a direct readout of an analysis of gene dosing on the X chromosome. And we told you last time as we're finishing that TLR7, I uh, was getting to this anyways, maps to the short arm of the X. And in all placental mammals, there is what's called a dosage compensation for X-linked gene polypeptides. And that's between XX females and XY males. So that what occurs is what is known as silencing of one of the two loci of the two different distinct X chromosomes in the female. And this usually occurs um, very early in the development of the female embryo, very, very early after initial fertilization of the sperm and egg. All right? Just as sex is determined then. Before that, right when that syngamy occurs. So what they call this is X chromosome inactivation, or XCI. And <clears throat> it was thought to be a very stable effect only in adult somatic cells, and that during the very early stages of development, there might have been some silencing going on that is not detected once, for example, parturition occurs. And that, that argument is still pretty strong, although there are really a very small quantity of genes that seem to be inactivated. And obviously, the selection pressure would be if that gene is double-dosed because of those two X chromosomes in the female, and that gene product is going to have, like in this case, an effect of generating a hyperimmune response in every cell that has a double dose of TLR7 production, then that's going to be selected against. And so that would be why all females don't suffer from that particular autoimmune disorder linked to, to the uh, short arm on chromosome X that results in a duplication of TLR7 that um, ultimately presents as lupus. But some females do obtain lupus. But more importantly, this really does drive home once again the very, very distinct effect of the chromosomal 
load in female versus male. Two X chromosomes, much more likely for a potential for duplication of a gene, and the duplication of that gene, if it is not silenced, and I would argue often silenced by epigenetic phenomena, um, but also ultimately via a direct inhibition of transcription of that other copy based on gene rearrangement or perhaps the silencing of the promoter or enhancer regions. That would then be not epigenetic, but a genetic dominant effect. But because of all the epigenetic signatures we find in the cell, I have very little doubt that when we go looking for epigenetic modification of some of these uh, XCI genes, maybe even TLR7, that we're going to find epigenetic markup on that. Probably a heavy-duty methylation on the promoter regions and enhancer regions and could well be associated, depending on where this is occurring, right, with histones. Okay? And then, therefore, the covalent modification, uh, either the deacetylation or the uh, monomethylation of lysine residues on those systems, which has been uh, hierarchically alter, um, altering the effect of gene expression by decreasing its expression, just like hypermethylation of promoters and enhancers, working um, either proximal or interior to the exons, right, in, at intervening sequences. So that's a, that's a, that's the most important thing about this uh, disposition here in, in lupus. Um, uh, so what else do we want to say? Okay, so the mechanism for X chromosome inactivation, <laughs> because it seems to be very stable, it's very likely not simply an epigenetic phenomenon. But you know, epigenetic signatures can be very stable. Right? That's the whole idea of the silencing of one copy of a gene. And we see this um, also in autosomal genes, of course. So this is something that is very profoundly significant when we first started understanding the potency of epigenetics to control the dose number of each gene so they're not equally expressed. Right? Because there's always it, well, there's always the possibility and even the probability of having at least two copies of a gene. And you know, you can get gene amplification as well. Right? We've talked much about this too. And then you get a speciation of the genes. That's how you generate gene families, right? For example, like toll-like receptors. Right? That's another story. That's another biochemical narrative even though it, we're talking about genetics, molecular genetics. Whenever you put the molecular, whenever you modify the word genetics, you're talking biochemistry. And no geneticist convinced me otherwise. They wouldn't try anyway. Okay, so <clears throat> think about pseudo-autosomal regions that you find in the Y chromosome that could be endowed on the X chromosome therefore generating a biallelic expression. Because remember, male, you have the XY. You have heterogametic sex chromosomes, right? So that could be called a pseudo-autosomal region because those are the sex chromosomes. 
Now, we're not talking about that for TLR7, but we could be talking about other genes. It could be silenced, for example, on the Y that are similarly silenced on the one of the X in the female. If indeed, in either case, those sex chromosomes could be carrying copies of genes that need to be under a heavy level of selection pressure so only one copy is expressed. And that, again, can involve alteration of the sequence of the DNA. When that's the case, it would be a genetic change. But by and large, those genetic changes, I'm convinced, start out as epigenetic modifications. And then the selection goes for the possible level of mutation in a particular nucleotide or suite of nucleotides that render that gene no longer active. And we do have a lot of those ghost-type genes. They're no longer active genes. Okay? And that's in the, all the other uh, chromosomes, not just in the, uh, the, X, the X or the Y. That's right. They call those pseudogenes, by the way. Geneticists call them. I don't really like that term. Just like they came up with pseudo-autosomal. I don't think it's pseudo-autosomal. I think it is preferential non-autosomal. See, I like that better because it's more definitive than pseudo-autosomal. That just means, you know, kind of like or pretending to be, right? I don't like that kind of nomenclature, but just me. Now, when you look at X-linked gene expression, now this has been studied both in uh, the murine model and in the human model. You get actually quite a um, small number of exonic polymorphisms. Now, I've talked about this many times. So the axons tend to have very, very few genetic modifications. Why is that? Because the exon, once it's transcribed, is making a codon, and once that is translated, it's making an amino acid, which is polypeptide sequence, right? So you can't have any major modifications in exons because you're going to end up with not with pseudogenes, but with impaired polypeptides. Protein might well be made, but it won't be a protein that is useful because it requires a great deal of fidelity at the level of sequence homology. So where you're going to get a lot of these modifications, yes, of course, in those so-called intervening sequences, the introns. And that's where you see things like develop an enhancer elements, enhancer domains, to increase the uh, expression of a gene, or by the same token, a corruption of the intervening sequences so that you get very poor expression of certain exons. But it's not happening in the exon itself, sensu stricto. You understand? All right. And in that case, when you do have some of these X-linked genes, right, and you're looking at them, these exonic polymorphisms, and you look at specifically what they're doing, those genes might well be escaping that inactivation, whatever's causing it. Because the inactivation is not selecting on the exon on the intron. So that's why you still develop then another what? You see where I'm leading this? Another authentic Tolec receptor 7. And not just some mutated form of the polypeptide that wouldn't be aggressively enhancing something like uh, systemic lupus. See? And therefore no disease. 
Okay. So I say this is like an epigenetic phenomena, both at the level of temporal, phenomenological alteration of gene expression, starting along the trajectory, the journey of selection, genomic selection, as well as I, I, I'm convinced that when we start looking at, and we have enough time to do all of this sequencing, all this pyro sequencing, and really getting into looking at what's going on in introns in terms of covalent modification of intervening sequences, what we're going to find are more and more epigenetic markups that are indeed controlling gene expression. You see, this way you maintain the fidelity of the exon. And you're doing all, you, I mean, the cell is doing all this manipulation at the level of the shuffling of the exons, which is a theory that's been out there for 40 years at least. Right? That's how you get domains from genes, like, uh, you know, the globin gene family. You know, that is a, a series of exons that have been segregated out and mixed up like cards in a deck. And, and then dealt back out into a multiple le level of families of genes. All right? Yeah. Okay. I think that's what we're looking at here. So the TLR7 is a non-pseudo-autosomal locus. And that's probably how it escapes the XCI. That's what the, the argument then uh, obtains, the, the argument which obtains. Now, TLR7 is transcribed on both X chromosomes. And you find this in peripheral dendritic cells. You find this in B cells. And you also find this in monocyte macrophages. And this you find in normal female population. And in the KS males. Remember, that's the XXY male, a very rare mutation right? So you can find the XXY male or the normal female XX not presenting with lupus. Okay, Even though in some of those innate, those innate and acquired immune cell populations, you're getting both TLR7s made. Okay. So Probably that suggests that this TLR7 gene product nevertheless presents a selective advantage. Now, where would that selective advantage be? Probably not in those dendritic cells with all the antigen presentation. Remember, all that pro-inflammatory response from an innate immune cell that nevertheless is a professional APC sending all that information upstream to the T cell. Right, making that T cell synapse there, and then recruiting that T cell to start becoming an active component of the acquired immune response. No, you see it in the B cell population. See, so that's an antibody producer, and maybe that's necessary. Right, maybe that's actually necessary because TLR dependent development checkpoints of effector B cells or plasma cells may be very important to be able to launch a massive pro-inflammatory response. I can see this as, you know, with my immunological training, right? 
bottom line is that TLR7 seems to evade the XCI, right? In female primary immune cells. This we know. And this is very well linked to why females are 10 times more likely to get lupus than men. Now, women in general are almost three times at greater risk of developing some other 24 autoimmune diseases. And indeed, about 80% of all the patients that have autoimmune disease currently diagnosed in the population are women. Now, we know this, a previous study, because the same, this was retroactively analyzed, but from 1965 to 1995, just looking at the data, we found that 80% of the women that were diagnosed, that was 30 years ago now, okay, 80% of the people diagnosed all the means is women, okay? So it's not something that's cropped up recently. It's something that's in the population. Now, what are the most prevalent autoimmune diseases? Well, we've talked about some of these many times, <laughs> but rheumatoid arthritis, RA, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, okay? So this is going to be a result of an effect on the thyroxine program of events. Remember, thyroid, this, is this is going to be the thyroid hormone. Right, the iodinated thyroid hormone. And that's going to be our next topic, by the way. That's why I'm introducing it to you now. <laughs> so there's Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Celiac disease is more common in women than men. That's an autoimmune disease. Graves' disease. But type 1 diabetes is a male-associated disease. So it's not uniform, you see. So thyroiditis, particularly... 19 to 1, female to male. Sogren's syndrome, or Sjogren's syndrome, 16 to 1. Scleroderma, or systemic sclerosis, 12 to 1. Really high female to male sex ratios on all of those autoimmune diseases. So revelatory evidence obtains that hyperinflammation in men, including, and yes, we get it, us guys get it, cardiovascular diseases. For example, atherosclerosis, dilated cardiomyopathy. Many cancers, cancers of the lung, cancers of the liver and of the stomach and uh, other digestive organs. And male-dominant, autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes and wait for it because this is up and you hear about this often a male dominant autoimmune disease has been on the record on the books for decades is myocarditis and those in men are actually the lead some leading causes of death in us men so in females many of the autoimmune diseases don't kill but they present autoimmune diseases, which are chronic, nasty presentations, but they don't kill the female population. Whereas in men, when they get autoimmune diseases, many of those are lethal. 
Okay, myocarditis is one of them. Type 1 diabetes, absolutely lethal unless it's detected, and insulin is supplied. And so in contrast to that, inflammatory diseases that occur far more often in women, just told you that, 80% of all, are chronic, low mortality, and they often run to female allergies and female asthmas, okay? So, got a table here. Rheumatoid arthritis is about a three to one, women to men. I told you Hajimoto's thyroiditis is 19 to one. That's pretty amazing. Celiac disease is only about 1.3 to one. So about 57% of all described diagnose celiac as female, but it's still there. There's still a bias. Graves is seven to one. I think I mentioned that already. Multiple sclerosis. It's not nearly as severe as, um, for example, the thyroiditis, but it is significant. For every one man that's um, diagnosed with MS, two women are diagnosed. It's two to one. All right. For lupus, again, I told you it's seven to one. Scleroderma, 12 to 1, right? So you get the idea. With men, if you want to know the myocarditis ratio, for every one woman who gets diagnosed for myocarditis, 3.5 men are diagnosed. So it's 3.5 times more likely for men to get myocarditis in the general population. Now let's talk about this room, rheumatoid event ontology. It's a paper published very recently in the journal Rheumatology, 2023 July. That's pretty recent, right? Tells us the following. Myeloid cells that come from the monocyte macrophage lineage are present, and I told you this when we were doing immunogenetics, um, those particular cells are really well um, presented in the RA joint, okay, in the rheumatoid arthritic joint. And those cells, remember, it's going to be M1 macrophages. Remember that old story? It wasn't that long ago. It was about three months ago I was talking about this. <clears throat> those definitely contribute to the disease. But it's the distinct, once again, think about the categories and think about the phenomenal domains we just went through at the beginning of this lecture, okay? Distinct macrophage function has to be described. So simply macrophages showing up in the rheumatoid arthritic joint is not sufficient to explain disease. It is the specific cellular phenotype of the macrophage, which is significant. And we should know this from our M1, M2 long series of lectures. So that means we can talk about metabolic activity of infiltrating polarized macrophages, polarized M1, M2. And what that event provides for the pro-inflammatory presentation in rheumatoid arthritis. So let me check my time here. 
because I think I've been going along on the tooth in my um yeah, yeah we got we got enough time to get to get into this I think okay so CD14 positive monocytes from RA and healthy control blood was isolated this is what this paper did and they use those cells to examine in the process they call ex vivo because you're keeping the cells in cell culture or either following them directly via differentiation into M1, M2 macrophages. Okay. The inflammatory responses, metabolic analyses, and using inhibitors to determine pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory, polarity, and valency mechanisms was further analyzed via quantitative RT-PCR and at the protein level of the Western blots using antibody all these proteins, proteins that they're specifically interested in. So circulating RA monocytes are indeed hyperinflammatory when they are stimulated. There is a significantly higher level of transcription translation of pro-inflammatory cytokines compared with healthy control. And the phenotype is, that is maintained upon differentiation into mature ex vivo polarized macrophages has been observed. Okay, so that's the whole idea of the ex vivo. Once those cells make those polarized differentiations between M1 and M2, when you keep them in culture, they stay polarized? Ah, uh, yes. So something permanent has happened to those macrophages. A terminal differentiation, if you like. Uh, I would almost use the word pseudo, but I just told you I don't want to use that, so I won't. Now, the induction in pro-inflammatory mechanisms is actually accompanied by and paralleled by, wait for it, pause, yes, cellular bioenergetic alterations. Finally, bioenergetics, right? So the RA macrophages are very metabolically active. They have a robust oxidative phosphorylation electron transport chain activity, mitochondrial activity, plus a glycolytic flux. So it looks like fatty acids are involved here. It looks like you're getting glycolysis, pyridiadrogenase, acetyl-CoA, Production in the mitochondria, condensation with oxalacetic acid, citric acid cycle generating NADH and FADH2 through, through those dehydrogenases. I'm not going to name them again. You should have them memorized. And then running all that NADH and all that FADH2 through the complexes one and two specifically there to do what? To all be oxidized, running electrons through the four complexes and the protons through the proton motive force, except for complex two, which doesn't have enough chemical energy to do a proton uh, flux across the inner mitochondria membrane, and the others do, ultimately resulting in proton pumping ATPase activity and ATP synthesis. Okay? That's all going on with these macrophages, you see? It's going to give you some of that understanding of what we mean by a bioenergetic enhancement. You're getting glycolysis, you're getting not lactic acid production, 
you're not running a, a very active oxidative pentose-phosphate pathway because you're not uh, biosynthetic at this point. It's all about energy production. That means glycolysis, TCA cycle, electron transport, chain oxyphos. Okay, you got it. All right. Now, what else do I want to say? This pro-inflammatory mechanism that's, that's tailored for this because you have to produce a lot of energy to make a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines, therefore, is linked directly to cellular enhancement of bioenergetics. So, so there is also a change in mitochondrial morphology in RA patients versus healthy controls. Now, what do you think that change in mitochondrial morphology is going to be? Well, we might be talking about copy number of the mitochondrial genome, which changes the morphology. Getting ready for what? Mitochondrial fission, making more mitochondria, because a highly aerobic, active cellular system has more than one mitochondria per cell, right? Yes, of course. So it changes the morphology. Right? We talked a lot about that in uh, immunoepigenetics. Now, oh, I better check this. This was going to be the real take-home message, but <laughs> I've got to stop. I only have uh, 45 seconds left. I was going to mention you the two genes that they found, which are significant in this regard in rheumatoid arthritis. Okay? And remember, we're really interested in this because it's going to be a sexless disease, right? Absolutely. So I'm going to end here, second lecture anyway, so it's okay. I think we got um, a full measure of what we wanted to say in this lecture. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra, or Guerra, as my grandfather would say, coming to you from the Inland Pacific Northwest uh, on the 7th of September, 2023, saying bye for now.